Today's reading is from Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. The book of the prophet Zephaniah. Zephaniah lived during the final decades of the southern kingdom of Judah. It was when King Josiah had attempted to bring about real change in the land by removing idols and restoring the temple to the worship of Israel's God alone. But Israel was just too far gone. Worshiping other gods was too entrenched in the life of the people. And it ended up that Josiah's pride led him to a tragic death on the battlefield as he set Jerusalem on a collision course with Babylon. And Zephaniah, he had seen all of this coming. For years, he had been warning the leaders of Jerusalem. And this little book is a collection of his poetry summarizing his message. It's designed to have three main parts. The first focuses on the day of the Lord's judgment coming on Judah and Jerusalem. The second part is about the day of the Lord's judgment on the nations and Jerusalem again. And then the third section explores the hope that remains for the nations and for Jerusalem on the other side of God's judgment. The first section opens with the shocking reversal of Genesis 1. So God's good, ordered world is going to descend back into disorder and darkness and chaos, becoming uninhabitable once again. And as you keep reading, you realize Zephaniah is developing all of these powerful poetic images to describe how Jerusalem's world is going to end. All of the city's institutions for worshiping the gods of the Canaanites will be destroyed. All the leaders who perpetrated injustice, all the economic centers where crooked lending and borrowing took place, all of it will be gone along with the city's walls. Zephaniah develops these almost apocalyptic images to show the significance of what's going to happen. It all refers to a great army that is coming to take out Jerusalem. Now it's interesting that Zephaniah never mentions whose army God's going to use to bring this judgment. Now we know from the other prophets, Micah or Habakkuk, that it's Babylon. But Zephaniah never mentions that. And it's because he wants to highlight God's role in orchestrating the rise and fall of the city. And actually that's what gives Zephaniah hope. Not that Jerusalem as a whole can avoid its fate, but in the closing poem of section 1, he calls on anyone in Jerusalem who would seek the Lord. And he says these will make up the faithful remnant, the people who could be spared if they repent. 
In the second section, Zephaniah widens his focus to include the nations around Judah. So the Philistines or Moabites, the Ammonites, even the Assyrians. He accuses all of them of corruption and violence and arrogance, and he predicts that all of them will fall before Babylon too. And what's shocking is that the final people group targeted in this section are the Israelites in Jerusalem. It's like the leaders and prophets and priests of Israel are so corrupt and violent, so estranged from their God, that he doesn't even recognize them as his people anymore. And so this section ends with God's final decision. He says he's going to gather up all the nations, including Jerusalem, and pour out his burning indignation. God's justice becomes this consuming fire that devours evil from the land, which is really intense. And so the following line that brings us into the final part of the book comes as a total surprise. We discover that this burning fire of divine judgment is not aimed at destroying people. Rather, its purpose is to purify the nations, including Jerusalem. So the section begins as God says that he's going to heal and transform the rebellious nations into one unified family. And that after being purified, they're going to turn from their evil and call upon the name of the Lord. These images point to the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12 that God would find a way to bless the nations and Jerusalem as well. The conclusion of the book focuses on the restoration of the city at the center of the nations. God's presence is there in the restored city, along with that faithful remnant that's been humbled and transformed by God's mercy. And they're called to sing and rejoice. And then in this striking image, we're told that God is a poet who wants to sing too. Your God will live among you, and he will celebrate you with songs of joy, Zephaniah says. The closing poem of the book ends with these very powerful images about God gathering up into his family, the outcast and the poor and the broken, where he exalts them into a place of honor. And that's how the book ends. This little book of Zephaniah, it contains some of the most intense images of God's justice and love that you find anywhere in the prophets. His justice is about his passion to protect and to rescue his world from the horror of human evil and violence. God won't tolerate the horrible things that humans do to each other and to his world. But he brings his justice in order to restore, in order to create a world where people can flourish in safety and peace because of his love. And so Zephaniah forces us to hold together these two aspects of God's character, his justice and his love. And he wants us to discover that together they contain the future hope of our world. And that's what the book of Zephaniah is all about. All right. So, Zephaniah, a couple things before we get started. Uh, maybe you walked in this way, you saw the baptism trough out there. We are going to have baptisms this morning. Five people are getting baptized. So after this service, we'd love for you to stick around a few minutes extra, uh, go out and um, participate in, in uh, the baptisms with us. Um, if you have children in children's ministries, uh, please run and get them first and then bring them over as well. And uh, we, we will hold off starting the baptisms until we have pretty much everybody uh, gathered over there. Also want to thank, um, so that uh, Cody could get some time off, I um, uh, want to thank Nate coming over here from Alhambra. I mean, with that beard, how could he not be from Alhambra? But at any rate, Nate coming over and leading us. And then, of course, John, who's one of our own percussionists uh, working together. Really appreciate them uh, leading us in terms of music this morning. Uh, last thing is um, we always get questions about uh, how to handle year-end giving, and uh, today's the 30th, so might as well mention that. 
Uh, the, the main thing, is people are asking this question because they want to make sure they get the tax deduction usually um, uh, for 2018. You need to make sure that we are in possession of the year-end gift or it is postmarked by the 31st. Those are, those are the things that we have to make sure of in order for us to be able to credit it towards uh, 2018. So if you're planning on doing that, you've got, I don't know, 36 hours yet uh, to be able to do that. So I think that's it. Uh, Zephaniah, it's, it strikes me the more we get into these minor prophets, uh, again, the themes that keep coming up. I'm going to mention God's long game again today. He has a long game that uh, his game actually is going to outlast all of our physical lives. We need to understand that. That's why it's hope and faith. Um, but also, just especially with the video we saw today on Zephaniah, you think about how often we have referred back to Abraham, I, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 12 and the story of Abraham. Uh, how often we've mentioned that, that the prophets are constantly looking back to the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that, that he is going to make Abraham's people his people. And they will always eventually be victorious. There will always be a remnant. And, and just the constant message of that. And then the other thing, again, I don't know if you picked it up in the video today, but it's just fascinating how uh, the prophet's message tends to focus primarily on the leadership of the nation. Again, uh, putting the responsibility with the leadership. It doesn't let the masses of people off the hook. You're still responsible. Uh, but the role that leadership plays in taking their people down the wrong paths is significant, and we need to recognize that and understand that. And in particular, how often the priests are mentioned. In other words, the pastors, the ministers, the religious leaders. We need to take that seriously. And I know some of you are like, that's right, Frank, you need to take that seriously. And you're right, we do. Pastors need to take this seriously. Priests, ministers... Those who are leading God's church need to take this seriously as well. We can't just chalk this up to uh, some sort of Old Testament prophecy that doesn't have anything to do with us. It has everything to do with us. There's clearly all of these bridges that are, that are coming that show the relevancy of these prophecies that are two to 3,000 years old to what is happening in our world to today. So Zephaniah. Zephaniah, we learn in verse 1, is a descendant of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of the better kings in Judah um, several decades before the Babylonians came in. Hezekiah's prophecy, his ministry, took place about 80 uh, years after his ancestor, Hezekiah, was king of Judah. And, and Hezekiah was a good enough king that uh, God held off his judgment of the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, for several decades because he really did try to to institute some changes and, and, and some reforms, and God approved of those. But ultimately, it wasn't enough, and it didn't work out very well. Zephaniah's ministry, so Hezekiah was around in, in the late um, 8th century, so uh, seven, you know, like between 690 uh, and, and maybe uh, 720, that was when Hezekiah reigned. Zephaniah's Ministry is dated approximately 635 B.C. to 620 B.C., just a few years before 
um, the Babylonians come in and they siege Judah and Jerusalem in 605. Now, Zephaniah also speaks of the coming destruction of Assyria. Assyria was the instrument of God's judgment for the northern kingdom in 722 and for more than a century had enjoyed uh, the status as the world's only superpower and in fact were thought of by people in that world as completely inaccessible and invincible. But Zephaniah says, no, even the Assyrians are going to fall. Even the vaunted, inaccessible uh, Assyrians are, are going to fall, which in fact did happen. Uh, in 612, just six, seven years before Nebuchadnezzar comes in and levels Jerusalem, uh, Nebuchadnezzar goes into Nineveh and, and levels Nineveh, and, and they take over the, the world heavyweight championship, if you want to look at it um, that way. And like a few other prophets that we've already looked at, Zephaniah's message is pretty much two things. And you heard the video mention this first one for sure. And that is the fact that at this point, Zephaniah is saying, it's too late. The judgment is coming. Now, I'm, we're going to talk about the judgment, and it's pretty dark. I mean, these judgment oracles that we find in Zephaniah, and it's a very short book, but these judgment oracles are some of the harshest and darkest that we find. Um, but he's saying, it's really too late. Uh, you've gone too far and even King Josiah is trying to institute these reforms. It's, it's all pretty much too late. Here's the second thing. God has a long game. There is going to be salvation and redemption to come. And in fact, this judgment is primarily used for purification. Okay? So this book is only three chapters long. The first two and a half chapters are these oracles of judgment. First against Judah, against God's people. Then against Judah's enemies. And then it goes back to oracles specifically against the people in Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah, the southern kingdom, God's people, and all of the nations. I mean, it, it, it's as though Zephaniah is saying, I want to make sure that everybody gets covered on this, on this judgment. And, and just give you a taste, a little taste of the judgment oracles that we find in these first two and a half chapters, um, this will give us a little bit of insight. This is chapter 1, verses 4 through the beginning of chapter 7. Yahweh speaks. He says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. You heard in the video that they have been trying to get these reforms in place, trying to get the people to quit worshiping false gods, to quit worshiping specifically the Canaanite god of Baal. But there was still this remnant of people who wanted to worship these false gods. They just hung in there with their false gods. It's just like today. We have our false gods today. Whatever it might be, status, power, wealth, um, sex, whatever it might be, we're just, we cling stubbornly to these False gods. So he says, I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. If you're still worshiping Baal, you're in trouble. And the name of the, here you go, priests. And the name of the idolatrous priests, along with the priests, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. What does the word Milcom mean? Milcom means your other king or your other gods, your false gods. In other words, here you go. There were priests 
as well as people, but specifically he's talking to the priests here, the pastors, the ministers, the leaders of the church. There were priests who were bowing down to God, to Yahweh, praising Yahweh, exalting Yahweh, preaching the good news of Yahweh, but they were also, here you go, hedging their bets. Well, I just want to make sure I got everything covered. And so they're still worshiping Baal as well, as well as all of their other false gods, all of their other, quote, kings in their life. So he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of them too. Remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, look, you can't serve two masters. You can only have one master. We're all created to worship. We are all going to serve something. Here's how some people say it. We'll all be a slave to something. We will all be a prisoner to something. It's best if we pick the right thing that we're going to worship, that we're going to be enslaved Two. But if you try to pick two in order to hedge your bets, you're going to have all kinds of issues and problems in your life. You can't. You're going to end up hating one and loving the other or despising one because of the, of the trouble it gives you and serving the other. It just doesn't work. J Jesus says that. So verse 6. So he continues, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him, this is who is... The, judging, the coming judgment is for. And then he says this, be silent before the Lord. Be silent before the Lord. I think that's an interesting command here. And I think it's interesting because we need that command too. You know, you and I, no matter what kind of trouble we get ourselves in, we've always got something to say about it, don't we? Right? You get caught... You've got some justification. You've got some explanation. By the way, I'm using you, meaning me as well. Just ask Jackie, okay? There's, we've always got a yeah, but. Yes, God, I'm worshiping Baal, but, but, there's always a yeah, but. There's always something that we're sure God just doesn't understand about us. There's stuff that we're able to keep hidden from God, right? You know, he's not smart enough to figure us out completely. We've always got some idea of how to talk ourselves out of trouble. We are so much more interested in listening to ourselves than to God. We're, we really love the sound of our own voice and the thoughts in our own head as compared to what God has to say. And we're sure no one has things figured out the way we do. So why be quiet and listen to someone else? And God says, just be quiet and listen. You need to hear this. You might actually learn something. And, and what you might learn is not just that God is going to call us to turn away from our sin, but that he also loves us, and he has a plan of redemption for us, and that he has a long game, and that this is really the best way that we can live if we would just listen. There is hope in him. And then you start to get into chapter 2. And you find that the judgment is not just on Judah, but on her enemies as well. Uh, let me talk about this for a little while. Um, we need to understand that God is not unjust. He, he, he's, not, he's not just interested in the sin of his, peop, his own people. He's, he's interested in the redemption, in the purification of everybody. Now, he starts with his people. He wants his people to be the light. But he's not unjust. 
He sees the injustice and the sins in others as well, not just his own people. We need to remember that no one can escape the presence of God. It's not like God is just with his people and he has no idea what's going on outside of his people. He's the creator of this universe. He's sovereign. He knows everything that's going on. And the fact that that no one can escape the presence of God can be a source of great beauty, comfort, and hope, or it can be a source of terror at the right moment. And the problem is is that we don't often think deeply enough about this until it's too late, like the people of Judah right now. It's too late for them. So Judah's enemies, well, certainly Philistia, the Philistines, and then there's Moab for various reasons, and Ammon, and Cush, and then Assyria, Nineveh. Assyria is specifically named in this book as well as uh, the great city of Assyria, Nineveh. Let me just mention this, okay? We're living in a day today, a time today, where there are many people who have become quite good at pointing out the sins of America, the sins of the United States, the terrible things that we've done, the mistakes that we have made. And as a result, many other people have gotten very upset about this going on. The people who want to call out their nation for their sins, for their mistakes, for their offenses. People are very upset about that, and we've become quite divided. Uh, just per, I will just personally tell you, I'm, I'm really not that upset about the people who want to call out the sins of America. I, I don't... I don't see anything wrong with that. I think, we, I think we, need, we need wisdom like that. We need that input. America's not perfect. We've made mistakes, and we should own that. Can you sense a but coming? There's a big but coming, okay? And here it is. But what I don't understand is that when I have these, generally speaking, when I have these conversations with people who want to do that, or when I read essays in newspapers or blogs, or in journals about people who are calling out the sins of America, I've noticed that there is this accompanying idea with most of them that no one else has ever done anything wrong. That we are the only evil people in the whole world. And everybody else is just fine. And if it weren't for us, this world would just be this wonderful place. No one else could possibly be the enemy of God the way we are. This section in Zephaniah should remind us that God sees everything, everything. And this isn't isn't just about us and them. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. We keep trying to divide this world into us and them. There is no us and them when it comes to God. There's us, all of us, and God. That's it. And, and this whole division that everybody wants to keep crying, how much longer can people anywhere exist with this constant drive toward division? It doesn't work. That's not a good long game. God has a long game of unity, not division. But it's for people who are going to turn to him. Now, Chapter 2, verse 3, there is just a a glimmer of hope in chapter 2, verse 3. This little verse here, 
Uh, this verse, Zephaniah says, this is how you might be able to avoid taking the brunt of the judgment that's coming and maybe even be a part of the remnant. He writes this. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So there's a little glimmer of hope there, but also in that verse, you, you see three sins that Zephaniah is particularly calling out. Three primary sins, idolatry, pride, and here's one you don't hear about too often, apathy or complacency. Okay? And you can see here in this quick verse of hope that he's got kind of the antidote or the antithesis of those three sins. There's an emphasis on humility, the antithesis of pride. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago as well. In, at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are humble and humble enough to understand that they need God. That they're not going to be able to fix this problem. That they're not going to be able to clean themselves up enough. There's nothing they can do. They need God. Poor in spirit are those who have said, I'm done. I'm at the end of myself, and I need God. That's humility. There's also this call to be zealous, which is the antithesis of apathy or complacency. Be zealous for righteousness and the commands of God. The commands of God would mean that you're not going to be worshiping idols and false gods. So there's the idolatry part as well. Um, back in, in, in chapter 1, Verses 12 and 13, Zephaniah tips his hand on this idea of apathy or, or complacency. Let me read you those two verses. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. In other words, I'm going to look under, look in every crevice, every crack and corner. I'm going to be searching for everything. Nothing will escape um, my search. And I will punish the men who are complacent. Complacent. Don't you usually have like adulterous or idolaters or liars or murder? I will, I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their gods shall be plundered and their houses laid to waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. I call this the great whatever. Whatever. Yeah, whatever. You're not moved by anything. It's kind of like Jesus' letter that he dictates to John in Revelation 3 to the church at Laodicea. I know your deeds. You're neither hot nor cold. You're nothing. You're whatever. I wish that you were hot or cold. I wish something was going on there, but you're nothing. You're indifferent, you're apathetic, you're complacent. Living as the people of God is not just avoiding sin, but it is also doing what you know you must do. Um, the Mosaic Law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible are, are filled with God commanding his people to be mindful of fellow humans' needs, regardless of who they are, and to act to help. 
You don't need to pray about it. You don't need to form a committee to study it. You just got to do it. But also, in this rebuke of Judah and her enemies, there is significant attention given to Assyria and her capital, Nineveh, which I find fascinating as well. This is toward the end of chapter 2, listing all of these uh, judgment oracles against uh, the Israelites' enemies, against Judah's enemies, and we get to Assyria. Verse 13, And he, the Lord, will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts. Even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A a voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold. For her cedar work will be laid bare. Cedar work, the very best woodworking in the city, is going to be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lived securely. Now just stop and think about that. Oh, we'll be fine. We're okay. We're inaccessible. We're invincible. People have thought that for centuries. This exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am and there's no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist So even the great Assyria is going to be laid waste. I mentioned this before. The Assyrians were probably the cruelest people in history, even worse than the Romans who perfected crucifixion. Some of what is recorded in history of what the Assyrians did during wars and to their captives would make even the most stoic person flinch. God is going to have his say even with them. This is the greatest city ever built up to that time. And Nineveh was just this picture of inaccessible power until the next city of inaccessible power was built, which was Babylon. (laughs) And we know what happened to them. And then it was Rome. And we know what happened to them. Nineveh gets laid to waste. Wild animals are going to take up residence in the rubble of what was once the world's greatest city. And people who pass by the city will mock and laugh at it. They'll scorn the city. This is a picture of the ultimate sovereignty of God. How much have human beings tried to do to demonstrate that we're bigger, more powerful, better than God, that we don't need God, that we're smarter than God, the towers that we've built, the technology that we've developed. How much have we done that? And over and over and over and over again, we're reminded that God is sovereign. And by the way, I said the ultimate sovereignty of God. I don't think you need the word ultimate when it comes to the sovereignty of God. He just is. His sovereignty just is. And then you get to the very last of the judgment oracles. Let me read it for you. It's chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. 
She does not draw near to her God. Listen to the emphasis again on the fact that people just don't listen to God. We don't listen. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. Verse 7 is particularly curious to me. I said, this is God, said, Surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they, God's people, were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather the nations to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. This last oracle against the nations and against Jerusalem uh, reiterates the judgment that's coming. And again, you, you see five primary sins in this oracle. Certainly pride, which we've mentioned before. And, and again, this unwillingness to listen. We might describe this as stubbornness. In the Old Testament, it's called being stiff-necked. Then there's corruption and injustice. And then finally, this last sin, a total inability to feel shame, guilt, or contrition for their evil deeds. We don't even feel bad about the stuff we're doing. That's called apathy. And like I said, verse 7 is, is, is curious. Even, I think it, even God is frustrated with their stubbornness. Yeah, God can get frustrated. He says, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling will not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. You ever gone into a meeting where you're trying to correct somebody and it's so obvious to everybody in the organization except for this one person that if they just did this one little thing, everything would be fine. You go into that meeting fully expecting that they're going to see the light. They're going to be corrected. Everything's going to be fine. It's going to take five minutes. And they're just like, no, 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 no. Not going to do all, Everybody's wrong. I'm right. There's always one voice in the wilderness that's right, and it's me. Well, we'll see how right you are. But all the more they were eager to make their deeds corrupt. But there is really good news. Took us a while to get there, I know, but it's really good news. This is our promise. Chapter 3, verses 9 through 13. Pay particular attention to verse 9. This is God speaking. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. That all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. In other words, from the entire creation, people will come. 
On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. He's recalling the fact that we've rebelled. He's saying, but you're not going to be put to shame. I'll take care of it. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. N notice who's doing the saving here. That's pretty clear, isn't it? God is the one who actively saves. He's the one that changes their speech. They open their mouths, and suddenly they're saying the right thing. You and I can't transform anyone. Try as we might, and believe me, I've tried, we can't transform anyone. And, and here's the other thing. It's really hard when other people expect us to transform them or somebody else for them, too. There is this expectation that we can transform. But ultimately, we can't. Only God can transform people. Now, he does use us as his vessels for testimony and witness. We are called to witness and to give testimony to God's character and to his saving grace, what he has done for us and what he has promised to do for us. Testimony to the inheritance that believers in Christ are guaranteed. But he is the essential finisher. Without him, there's no finisher. There's no closer. Yes, we're part of the game. He uses us. But he's the closer. By the filling of the Spirit, he's the one who causes the redemption, restoration, and transformation. And here's part of the tension. When, when, when you and I do well and good, it's not us. But you and I are still called to do well and good. There's the tension. There's the tension. And, and consider, a lot of that, most of us don't realize this. We're, we're, myself included, we're awfully quick to say the right thing, to come up with the best thing to say in every situation. And I think that we undervalue and undersell what we might call the gospel of presence. Not presence with a T-S, but pre like the gospel of being there. The gospel of availability. The gospel of just being a friend. The gospel of being a listening ear. The gospel of willing to take time. 32 years ago, that was Jackie for me. That was Jackie for me. I was 27 years old. There were, I, I, I'd experienced so many people who wanted to convert me. They were going to convert me. They were going to transform me. And if they just kept doing this with me hard enough, they were going to get me. And that was never Jackie. She was different. Now, I don't know. Maybe there are people out there that they respond really well to this. Okay? I get that. Okay? But it wasn't me. Jackie all she was was present. She was available. And she let me say some of the stupidest things. 
which I'm sure she went home and shared with her parents, and they laughed and laughed and laughed. But she was different. She just, she was just present. She was a beautiful picture of the gospel of presence in my life. And, 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 and her unanxious presence and faithful witness to God's character and to his work in her life was what precipitated him opening my eyes and transforming my heart. Here you go. Very simple sentence. Okay, you ready for this? Now, if you're an English teacher, I'm sorry if I butcher this, but it's a pretty simple sentence. God saves sinners. Amen? Okay, now we say that until we really understand what that means, right? And then we're like, well, man, I don't know. God saves sinners. See, it's really simple. You got a noun, you got a verb, and then you have what? A direct object. See, here you go. The direct object does nothing. The direct object has all of the action on that. So here you go. If you, if you ever want to be something in a sentence, the first thing, really, a direct object is an awesome thing to do because you don't do anything. You just sit there. God saves sinners. That's who God is. And he has a long game. And he's going to save. And then the joy that comes from that, verses 14 through 18. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Um, in, in reading and studying Zephaniah, I felt like there was this narrative flow that was somewhat similar to the last week of Jesus' life before the crucifixion and then the resurrection. There seems to be some similarity there. There's just so much darkness. Darkness abounds. Now, now Jesus' week started with some measure of hope. His triumphant entry into Jerusalem, right? And everybody's thrilled with him. But how fickle are the people? They must have had social media and the internet back, back then because within just a few hours, they had turned on Jesus. Somebody posted something. You know, he said something wrong about the wrong person. I don't know what. And boom, it just blew up. And it became very, very dark. And, and the people in Jerusalem at the time, you know, they had that same idea that so many of us get so often and so easily. Things are fine, things are good, and they're only getting better. But they got progressively worse. You read Zephaniah, and it just gets progressively worse. Jesus' week got progressively worse and worse and worse. And the stubbornness of the religious professionals, I call them the perps, the professional religious people. The stubbornness of the perps 
and the Roman government and even the abandonment by Jesus' own disciples, and you can see a little picture of that in Peter, they're a sort of picture of God's people in Zephaniah as well. No matter what, they just keep pulling away. And then it gets even worse for Jesus. Jesus, their hoped-for king, is executed. And there is doom and despair toward the end of Zephaniah that is similar to the doom and despair that Jesus' followers must have experienced at that crucifixion. But then three days later, the resurrection. He comes busting out of that tomb. We have Zephaniah chapter 3, the last half of chapter 3. We have three days later, Jesus comes flying out of that tomb, resurrected to new life, which we can all have in him. And he's alive today. God always has a long game. In that particular case, it was just three days. I know some of us wish for more of those three-day-long games. But he's always got a long game. Zephaniah tells us that. Jesus does it. And that calls for two things that we've always got to cling to, the hope that he gives us and the hope of that inheritance that he promises us. Let me read to you about that inheritance in 1 Peter. Peter, one of the ones who, who betrayed Jesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God's the one who saves, and if he's the one who saves, you can't possibly lose your salvation. It's all up to him. This, this series that we've done in the Minor Prophets has been, for the staff here, it's been one of the most rewarding series. We, we've had such great discussions. Um, we've heard from people in the congregation that it was good to go through something that was, for a lot of people, really brand new, uh, that opened some eyes to um, all the really good stuff in the Old Testament and how there's so much there that, that resonates with what's going on today. I, I felt like I wanted to just kind of put a cap on this whole series, and, and I really thought there isn't any better psalm to do that with than 98. Let this be the benediction to this series, Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all the, who dwell in it. Let the river clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together. Before the Lord, 
for he comes to, to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Let's pray together. Oh Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we thank you for how you've recorded these, uh, these narratives, these oracles, these sermons, these stories from your prophets. And God, it's good that we can look at those today, that we can find uh, relevancy to what's going on in our world today, but also we can find hope and comfort in the fact that you have a long game and that you are going to save. You're the ultimate finisher. You're the closer. God, we thank you for that. God, we thank you for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We just pray that we would have the courage to press into that, to live into that. Fill us with your Holy Spirit so we can do that. We pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen.